Welcome to the Poetry Magazine podcast. I'm Su Cho, guest editor of the magazine, and I'm really excited to be hosting the podcast for the next few months. So to start things off, we have a conversation on world building with poets Marianne Chan and Lisa Lowe. I had the idea to have a roundtable of sorts on what it's like growing up Asian American in white suburbia, you know, hence the world building. And we also get into armpit hair, sad mom poems, and how motherhood means having a constant audience, whether we want one or not. To begin, we hear Mary Ann Chan reading the poem, My Therapist Talks About Biddle City. My Therapist Talks About Biddle City. She asks why I'm here, and I say I'm having an interracial child, and I'm afraid she'll be white. This is a rapid access telehealth call. My therapist's face is framed by a rectangle inside a rectangle. My therapist is a white person. She squints as I speak, never interrupts me. I say I'm afraid my child will reject me, choose my partner's family, my partner's personality, because he's white and this country's white. My therapist asks if I grew up in Biddle City. There are lots of Biddle Cities everywhere, she tells me. I didn't know she knew about Biddle City. I thought it was a place I made up. I realized what was wrong all along. I say, I'm not an interracial person, but I'm afraid that I'm white. I'm afraid that I made myself white, that I'd chosen whiteness a long time ago. I see myself crying on a square on my computer screen. Like this, my face looks undeniably Asian. I try to relax so that it's no longer crumpled in this way, but it doesn't move. It's frozen like this in its rectangular box. You say in the poem, I didn't know the therapist knew about Biddle City. I thought it was a place I made up. And I love how it's a surprise as, you know, a reader and a listener to kind of get the acknowledgement that this is an imaginative place, but it turns out it's real. So there's there's a disruption there, right, in the sense of world building. And so I was wondering if you could talk about where Biddle City comes from. Biddle City is inspired by my hometown. So Biddle City is a fictionalized place that's inspired by my hometown, which is um, the Lansing area in Michigan. So um, we moved to Lansing when I was 11 years old. My brother was 14. We moved there from a military base in Germany, and we moved to kind of a small town just right outside of Lansing, a suburb of Lansing called DeWitt, which was mostly white. So the military base experience was really diverse. We had classmates who kind of had the same experiences as us. We all had these like transient experiences. We understood what it felt like to be the new kid. And we could make friends really quickly and then say goodbye really quickly as well. And we all knew how to do that. Um, But then when we moved to DeWitt, Michigan, everybody there had known each other their whole lives. And we were one of a very few number of Asian people who lived there. And we had a really hard time adjusting and making friends. And so my brother kind of started making friends a little bit more quickly than me. And I asked him one day why he had an easier time making friends than me. And then he said that what he would do, so we'd we'd kind of experienced some racism there. He would 
call himself racial slurs and he would make fun of himself as a way of appealing to the people that lived there Mm. and as a way of making them laugh and kind of calling out the elephant in the room that he was different and that he was uh, a person of color and that he understood that he was different too and that was a way that he was able to to make friends and he told me that I should try it and that was so that was the strategy that we used to make friends at a young age which is really <laughs> strange to think about now um and so I wanted to kind of think about how that experience continued to to impact both of our lives um into adulthood and so this poem is sort of about that is about sort of how Biddle City kind of is brought into adulthood um I'm calling the place Biddle City as a pseudonym for Lansing so yeah I hope that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, no, it does. I'm fascinated. I actually didn't know about your, the piece of advice your brother gave you about making friends and how to make friends. And it's really interesting to hear you like point that out as like a strategy he figured out very quickly. Because I remember doing that. I grew up in West Lafayette, Indiana. You know, we all tend to, we as in like people of color in a majority white school, um, kind of tend to do the same thing. But I never thought about it as, a strategy. And so I was listening to you talk. You mentioned about growing up on a on a military base and how people knew what to do, like how to act socially, right? And everyone had this common knowledge of saying hello and goodbye quickly. And when you moved, that knowledge was gone. And so I find that really interesting because in your poem, my therapist talks about Biddle City, there's so much uncertainty. How do you deal with uncertainty in your poems or in your Biddle City poems? How does uncertainty come into play and how do you reckon with that? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. And also just to add to what you said about um, West Lafayette, I sh- the therapist in this poem says there are lots of Biddle Cities everywhere. And I think that it's something that I've realized in adulthood is, is that a, a lot of people have had similar experiences to this. And it felt <laughs> yeah. I felt so isolated in this experience at a young age, but actually um, talking to other people that I've met in other parts of the country, I've realized that um, I'm not the only one who's had this experience. So um, it's helpful to know that. Um, in terms of uncertainty, I think that I I write from a place of uncertainty. I think of mm. poems as a like a form of inquiry. So in terms of this project, my question was like, how does this experience or how did these experiences of racial alienation that my brother and ha- and I had at a young age, how did it affect our lives um, and our, our personalities and our identities in, into adulthood? So that's something that I, I wanted to kind of understand better and grapple with. And, and that's when the poem kind of begins for me. Mm. Yeah. So the project began with a question, a question that is hard to answer. I don't think answerable. And so mm-hmm. I'm excited to keep that part of the conversation going. And Lisa, I think it now is a good time to ask you, in Palinode, your poem itself becomes a place, right? You imagine your poems as a space or a room that people can leave and enter. And so, Lisa, I think it'd be great if we could hear you read um, your poem, Palinode. Yeah, great. Palinode. Your mother enters the poem with her sadness intact. When your mother enters the poem, should she be a strict, sad, hardworking, or immigrant mother? Your mother enters the poem wearing all her animal print items at once, laughs holding a leopard print lamp. Your mother enters the poem laughing, asks for compensation. Shouldn't she be paid for inspiring you? 
Your mother reads the poem and tells you she isn't an immigrant. Student visa, she corrects your language. In many places, you keep her sadness intact despite the hazy quality of your childhood memory. Pay your mother to display her sadness across the pages of a poem. Mm, thank you. Yeah, I'm really struck by the ending of that poem, right? It says, pay your mother to display her sadness across the pages of a poem. And there's such a directness to that statement. I would love to hear you talk more about the kind of debt, you know, you or, you know, writers feel like they owe the people, mm-hmm. right, that we write about and how you feel um, about the way we commodify or talk about identity in poems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think I have it all quite figured out, um, something that I'm still kind of questioning in my own work. But I was thinking a lot about how um, there's just this idea of audiences expecting writers of color to write about their suffering. Um, Also, like the flip side of that, too, like praising writers who writers of color who don't do that also. So there's kind of like this lose lose situation that writers of color have to face. But I was thinking about just in my own writing life, I think, especially when I first started writing more seriously in my MFA, um, I wrote a lot about my mom, um, just have really admired her life journey. She came here from Hong Kong when she was in her early 20s. So again, yeah, I wrote a lot about her. But then after, you know, several years of that and kind of moving on to slightly different topics in my life, I was just thinking about how I portray both myself, um, but not only that, how do I portray my mom in my poems? And I've written a lot of sad mom poems. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I want to be true to her experience, but also feeling weird about kind of using it, maybe not using it as a commodified object, but realizing that it can be commodified. And seen as kind of like a poetic capital to audiences who may or may not be empathetic or see her as a real human person. But yeah, just just wondering about, yeah, what is our responsibility to people that we write about, especially loved ones that we care about and don't want to feel like we're exploiting them? I know that there are a lot of um, writers who say and think that you should be able to write about anything that's happened to you. Hmm. And I assume that includes like what's happened to your family too, because you also experience um, what your family experiences. You are also part of the family. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Your family is a part of you. But I don't feel that sort of freedom in my own work. And yeah, I'm just uh, continually trying to figure out what is the best way um, to write about it. And also I was telling my mom about my successes and she was like, oh, um, you should pay me also because I'm in your writing. (laughs) So yeah, that's definitely from her. Yeah. So I would love to ask you if you could talk more about why you think you might feel that way or kind of, or how you negotiate how much to write about. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. I think there's a lot of conversation in immigrant families, um, maybe not especially Asian families, but definitely Asian families too, about the debt that a lot of us feel to our parents. My mom came here um, from Hong Kong, but my dad, my dad's family has been in the States for a few generations. So just thinking even about my great, great grandparents um, coming over here and, you know, even going into writing and poetry. I know my parents um, didn't really care about 
what I was going to do for my job as long as I was happy and was successful, um, I think, in whatever field I was. I guess that's part of the debt feeling. But I think it gets a little bit complicated when thinking about how can we repay our parents for the difficult things that they've done in order to give us opportunities. And also thinking about how debt is thought about mostly in terms of money, but also um, I think there's a lot in terms of like, how can we repay our parents in terms of like actions? And I think especially as I get older, I feel even worse um, from living so far away from them. Um, Of course, like capital is seen in so many different kinds of ways. So yeah, just trying to navigate the different kinds that I have with my own parents. Yeah, that's really interesting because I feel like in my poems, the way I, I see it as kind of trying to memorialize or archive. My my parents are also immigrants and I wasn't born here. Although I keep forgetting that when people ask me, where are you from? Were you born here? I was like, yeah. <laughs> and my partner has to go, Sue, you weren't. <laughs> right. I go, oh, I forgot because I moved here when I was so young. But I think of my poems as a place to like remember things for them in a way that, you know, hardships don't get cataloged because we want to mm. like, we just want to forget it and kind of live in the grand moment, right? I feel like the three of us here kind of grew up in like Midwest, mis- Midwest adjacent spaces, right? When our parents and our family, we quote unquote made it um, in America by being becoming middle class somehow. I feel like my mom will do this thing where she'll go, oh, you do you remember this very poetic memory from, from our, you growing up? You should write about that. Like that's a nice thing to write about. That's a beautiful thing to write about. Um, And so I feel like our parents, in a way, have this different way of interacting with the worlds that they read in our work. Um, I don't know if they read my poems, but I'd be happy either way. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, I think that's the way I think about this, like this exchange of capital, Lisa, like you were saying, between, Mm -hmm. yeah, my writing and the, the quote unquote truth of my family and how they perceive it. And so I think this is a good place to turn to Marianne, like, do you feel this way about like having the freedom to write about your family because you are writing about your growing up as well? Yeah, I feel um, I, I was thinking as Lisa was talking and as you were talking, Sue, about how, all heathens and about how my parents read that whole book and they were really excited about it <laughs> and how I was not expecting them to read it at all. And how while I was writing it, I was thinking about what they might think as as they were mm. reading it. And how worried I was that I would say something that would offend them or that would make them uncomfortable in some way. Um, And it turns out that things that made them uncomfortable were like curse words and like references to sex. And that was the only thing that made them, like it wasn't, it didn't make them uncomfortable for me to like share private details, but it made them uncomfortable for me to like have the the word for masturbation in Bisaya in one of the poems. Like they did not like that. So hopefully they don't listen to this because I'm mentioning masturbation again and they probably won't like that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was it was just really interesting to see their reactions. And I think that I feel sort of like I want to represent them well and accurately. And that's sort of part of what, what I worry about in writing about them. I don't feel so worried about... When I do share private information about them, I check with them first before um, submitting it for publication. Because I think that uh, some of that information I want to be careful about. Um, But for the most part, I Mm -hmm. I want, I try my best to kind of put them in a really positive light in my poems. And maybe that's actually not a good thing. Maybe I should, you know, 
like show a more complex uh, portrait of my family mm -hmm. in my poems, but I love them so much. And so I feel kind of like it's the only thing I can do. <laughs> so, yeah. So speaking of like representation and kind of, I feel like we all feel this sense of duty, right? To do the best we can um, yeah. because we write about our family and our work. And so Lisa, I want to go back to your poem, Palinode. Um, so Palinode is a poem where the poet or you, right, you retract a view or a feeling, right, that was expressed in a previous poem. And so you title your poem Palinode, right? And it has this effect of making me want to go back and read all your work that's available, <laughs> right, to kind of figure out, um, yeah, what you're retracting or what kind of feeling or statement. And so I was wondering if you could share with us what you were retracting with this poem, I don't remember exactly the first time I read a palin of, of somebody else's, um, but I generally do think of it as like a specific poem that they're referring to or a specific poem's views that they're retracting. Um, I think I was thinking for mine, just retracting all of the sad mom poems that I've written um, in the past several of them that are still in my manuscript um <laughs> oh so all of them all of the sad mom poems <laughs> read them now <laughs> um yeah I love how palinodes um when I've seen other people do them kind of add this complexity um create this conversation between um different poems in a writer's work just the idea that it's still complicated and that I haven't um quite figured out what is the best way to represent sadness Especially, and I think I um, think a lot about it in this particular poem, but about like the trope of um, the Asian mom and how I've seen this figure kind of represented um, in media, in all kinds of media, um, the tiger mom, or just moms who've had to overcome a lot of stuff and are always sad in the corner. <laughs> so yeah, those are some of the viewpoints that I was thinking about retracting. Yeah, like you were trying to retract in a very noble way right, <laughs> of all the misrepresentations of sad immigrant Asian moms, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so that kind of leads me to my next question um, for the both of you, right? Um, Palinode and my therapist talks about Biddle City, talks about mothers, motherhood, mothers. Mm -hmm. So for the three of us, like, I'm really curious about if you have any questions for each other, right, about the way we write about mothers and motherhood, or in general, how you feel about thinking of motherhood as a writer, thinking of the future. I have a question for you, Mary, and I don't know if it's fully formed yet, but I really love how um, you were talking about writing about your family and your parents. And I love the idea that you said about like, you love them so much, like presenting them in a, in a positive light. And I was wondering, how do you feel about you becoming a mom too? How does that change? either your thoughts on writing about family or maybe it doesn't change it at all. But yeah, what's kind of like the progression of new thoughts that you have as you are going to be a mom soon? Yeah. Um, so as we're recording this, I'm six months pregnant. And I wrote my therapist talks about Biddle City early on in my pregnancy. But I think something that I've been thinking about a lot, and this relates to this poem, is watching and how children watch their parents and how, of course, Lisa, Sue, we all wrote about our parents, which means that we've like paid a lot of attention to them and observed them quite a bit, right? So that relationship, that kind of aspect of the relationship is really about a big part of my dynamic with my family. And I think about the possibility that um, I might have a kid who observes me <laughs> the same way that I observe my parents and sort of sees me as a model 
the way that I saw my own mother as a model for how to be and how to to move in the world. And I think that the reason why I had this interaction with my therapist is because I was thinking about the ways in which I want to model uh, engagement with Filipino culture and Filipino heritage Mm -hmm. for my child and the ways in which I'm not doing that, the ways in which I'm kind of lacking in that regard. In this poem, the speaker realizes that she's not an interracial person, but she's afraid that she's become white. She's afraid that she's made herself white a long time ago, that she's chosen whiteness a long time ago. And the idea of a child seeing the speaker in this way is really frightening for her. And so I think that I'm just thinking a lot in terms of looking and observation and how how my child might look at me and how they might see all of the flaws or all of the inadequacies. I think that that's something that's come up a lot in the poems that I've written about pregnancy and also just in terms of my thinking about being becoming a parent. I never thought of it that way, that when you become a mother or have a child, then there's always someone watching you very intently and learning from you. I don't know why I... You yeah. always have an audience. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I'm just thinking on that. I I feel like it's like the most obvious fact about becoming a parent, but that did not cross my mind for some reason. Actually, it didn't come up for me before either. And it's sort of interesting. It's kind of been an interesting Mm -hmm. adjustment period or or an interesting thing that I've had to adjust to since becoming pregnant. And just like the idea of like, just as like you've had, and not you in particular, Marion, we we have had to learn how to see our parents as human beings. Mm -hmm. Like I'm sure your child will also go go through that revelation as well at some point. Right, I I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) One day eventually, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I was just curious, you kind of touched on it and you said, you know, you've been considering questions you haven't before. It sounds like in your writing, what what perspectives have changed for you? What do you feel is different, if anything at all? The idea of the the constant audience of of parenthood has come up a lot in the poems that I've I've written, and one one that I've shared with you that I wrote and that has not been submitted for publication is called "Touching Myself While Pregnant," because and in that poem I've written about sexuality and and how I want to to show positive sexuality to my child, you know, that's something that's sort of come up for me. Just thinking about myself in relation to somebody else has been a different element in in the poems that I'm writing and also in just in my daily life, because I feel like I've just thought of myself as, as an individual for a while. And now I'm thinking about somebody being attached to me and somebody maybe looking at me for advice or for as a model for living, you know. I'm loving this conversation because we're talking about the different ways that we want to represent people, the way as writers, we feel like we will be models in the future um, for, you know, family members, children, you know, younger writers, you know, what have you, right? Because I feel like when our work is on the page and out in the world, right, it's there to be seen, right? And then we feel seen as people. I feel like we're all very cognizant of that. So I was wondering, um, Lisa, if you could read another poem for us that kind of touches on this idea of like watching and being watched and how we identify ourselves um, through that viewpoint. Lisa, would you read Ode to Armpit Hair for us? Mm-hmm. Ode to Armpit Hair. Every June, I think I might stop shaving my armpits. Every summer's half-assed attempt involves parties with my arms clamped shut like when I was in middle school 
afraid my deodorant wasn't working, or suddenly shaving if an event called for me to lift my arms above my head. I don't feel free like I feel I should, even in t-shirts my weak conviction guards me. But in the privacy of my own home, I stroke my hair like a hipster who wants wisdom from his beard. I can't stop admiring myself to my husband, who isn't as amazed as I am about follicles containing two or three strands, or the different lengths of hair like actual grass. My first female friend with armpit hair was beautiful and, of course, white, and I lived for a few years in a town full of organic gardening, armpit hair, and white feminism. Most of my creative energy then was spent writing about my mother, but not once did I think of our armpit hair, which I believed as a child existed out of self-disregard, as any type of political statement. I look at my armpits and think of the power accorded to them because I grew up here, am young still, as if they could, like the stereotype, live vicariously for my mother's. I can't now see armpit hair in a white woman without picturing expensive produce and clusters of white women, even white women I love, safely ensconced. In my wishful utopia, a future daughter of mine thinks as seldom of white women as she does my armpit hair. So yeah, I feel like armpit hair is just so fraught and I don't have this in my kind of family lineage, but just like women who, you know, went braless or grew armpit hair. I think it was the seventies, right? You know, I don't, I didn't know anybody who did that. It's kind of becoming more of a thing um, in recent years. And just living in a very progressive white college town um, for a few years um, during my MFA, Bloomington, Indiana, um, just seeing a lot of armpit hair everywhere, um, a lot of nose rings. (laughs) I got a nose ring and then I was like, I'm like everybody else. But yeah, just thinking about the political implications, but also the racial implications also. I didn't write this in the poem, but I was even thinking about like how black hair shows up on my skin. It's like more the juxtaposition or the contrast is greater than like if I had blonde. Oh, yeah. It's like in your (laughs) face. Yeah. Yeah. Like I don't have blonde hair or even like, you know, lighter brown hair. So, yeah, just thinking about all those sorts of things in terms of armpit hair. You said armpit hair and thinking about Bloomington, Indiana, and armpit hair, nose rings, and like farmer's markets and all that jazz. Mm-hmm. Um, you said there are like all these like political and racial implications, right? And I was wondering if you can talk about that a little more. Yeah, I think um, I've written a lot in other poems of mine just about the idea of, I think you mentioned earlier in your other question about watching and being watched. And I think, mm-hmm. um, again, kind of relates to the earlier conversation about even just like watching our parents as models, as models in this country who um, kind of deviated from like what is the typical norm. So yeah, I was just thinking about in terms of armpit here in this poem about being looked at and feeling like I'm being looked at even though I'm probably not being looked at in that way or um, maybe I'm being looked at but it doesn't actually matter Mm. but just thinking about the act of watching as um, kind of a racialized activity um, I felt like when I was a kid and I'm sure a lot of us have felt this way but just always watching and not talking that much and just observing Mm. and the idea of feeling like I know white people really well just because I've watched them my whole life and tried to emulate them in different ways Mm. I think that's all part of thinking about like the racialized body. How do I write about bodies in my work, but also how do I appear as a body um, in the world too? Yeah, I love the way you put that. We know white people so well because we've been watching them (laughs) our whole lives and try to blend in and how 
talk about like the blonde, you know, like body <laughs> hair, and it looks very cute because it's very wispy, like you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wheatgrass or whatever, and like Instagram photos, right? <laughs> and I remember um, maybe I should write a poem for like ode to my leg hair. Mm-hmm. I wanted to shave my legs because everybody was doing it. And I didn't understand because like I couldn't see any hair on like white people's <laughs> legs because they were blonde. And I was like, oh, should I? And that was the one thing about my body my mom was adamant about not touching. Mm. And she just promised me that if I don't touch it, it will remain thin mm. and that they will all fall off one day. <laughs> and to this day, I've never shaved my legs. Mm. Um, they're still there, um, <laughs> but I can't help but. You know, like um, when you go to the pool or the beach and you come out of the water, like you can definitely see them because they're like thin black hairs mm-hmm. on your legs, right? And I'm usually pale because I'm Korean. Um, but yeah, and I think about that. But as like I now I'm now wondering if that was my mom's way of kind of helping me see myself mm. in like a non-white lens and just be like, no, like are the family the women in our family, like none of us shave our legs. It's fine. Right. And there's a private story that my mom told me about bodies, but <laughs> now I'm like scared. So I'm not going to share that here, <laughs> but I'll write a poem about it perhaps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but anyway, so I'm thinking about that a lot. And so I think um, what we're all talking about is kind of writing as Asian American women in 2021. And we're talking about bodies and watching people and kind of coming to terms with our perspectives growing up and how they were forged and like what it means to us now. And so Marianne, I was wondering if you could read uh, your poem, Love Song for Ayumi, because I feel like it touches on this um, really well. Absolutely. Love Song for Ayumi. Ayumi never spoke in class, never responded to anyone who talked to her, and I tried talking to her once, no reply, but I loved her fleecy hair, her pants too short, not in fashion, ahead of her time in her high-waisted cropped trousers, and I envied the way she drew cartoon figures expertly on a piece of notebook paper, and I was new to Biddle City, and the year before I got there, she'd had lice, had already been considered dirty, infectious, contagious, a virus, so when I arrived, the white kids of Biddle City with the frosted tips asked if I was lice infested too and I said no but the truth was I'd had lice a few years back while visiting the Philippines and if I'm being honest I remember that period fondly my mother's warm fingers on my head carefully pushing her nails into the white insect eggs on my scalp until they snapped But I didn't tell anyone that I enjoyed having lice because that's weird, creepy even. Because who likes lice? Maybe a Yumi. Perhaps she would have spoken to me if I'd told her. But she responded to no one, not even the teacher, not even the principal. And she was the only other Asian girl at my school. People claimed she knew no English, but they were wrong because she was a rebel. This was silence as protest. She never said a word except one time in seventh grade health class when the teacher said, Ayumi, what do you say if someone offers you drugs. She replied, just say no. The words as clear as the Biddle City sky in springtime when it unbuttons its winter shirt to reveal the sky's bare chest. Blue, 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 blue. And I loved the sound of her voice so much I wanted to hug her then. But she would have kicked me. I'd seen her kick other kids when they touched her. And I was a loser without a single friend. And she was a powerful girl, a fighter, never lowering herself. And I loved her, really, I loved her, but I didn't want to be her. 
Thank you for reading that for us. I love the part about lice and the tenderness that you felt when your mom was checking her hair. And maybe this is revealing too much, but I love like lice, lice day at elementary school. I don't know what they're officially called, but when the nurse, you know, like I feel like annually, at least where I went to school, like the nurses would come and like check everyone's hair. I love that shit. Like, because it felt so intimate in a space, I think, at school where I didn't feel comfortable enough to feel any intimacy or like connection. So I just like, really cherish that moment so it's good to hear your poem um and so i wanted to ask you about ayumi and your final lines of that poem yeah i admired her so much when i was a kid for being powerful because i i i thought of myself as being such a a wimp and and such a loser and, and nobody wanted to be my friend and this person just made herself she she was so she she avoided everybody so much and and was so uh, resistant to friendship that i feel like i saw a kind of power in in the way that she like moved in the school but at the same time even though i admired her for that for being kind of like honest about how she felt about everyone cuz i felt the same way like i didn't like the people that i was around too and she she kind of showed it and i didn't want to show it i was too afraid to show it because i wanted to be liked and i didn't want to be alone and um she wasn't afraid of of being alone and i really liked that about her but at the same time i wanted to be somebody who had friends and i didn't want to be you know it didn't yeah so she she so i loved her uh, really i loved her but i didn't want to be here because um she in, in the end would mm. be alone no matter what because she's chosen that and that's something that i didn't want especially yeah. in middle school at the time wow so do you hope that she'll find this poem and read it or like how, i mean, i feel like we've been talking about audience um in our work right and who will read our work and so yeah marianne i'm just so curious what are your hopes for this poem like will it reach her well ayumi isn't her Ayumi is not her real name. I think that if other people in my high school or my school, if they read this poem, they would be able to identify who she was. But then I felt kind of mm. uncomfortable putting her real name in the poem. And I also don't know her last name. I was thinking about reaching out to her to see how she was doing, but I don't remember what her last name was. She, I think, moved before high school. And so I didn't keep in touch with her. Um, it would be interesting if she found this poem and re and realized that it was her in the poem. And if she did, I would love it. I would love it if she contacted me so I could <laughs> kind of see how she's doing and and kind of commiserate. It would be really interesting if that happened, but I feel like it's unlikely to happen. Mm, yeah, yeah. I w I just had to ask that question because it's a love song, right? And I just imagine this like being broadcast throughout Biddle City, right? <laughs> no matter the time or year, right? In the past or the future. Yeah. And so there's so much tenderness in all of these poems uh, Marion and Lisa where you're even grappling with like racial tensions right growing up I wanted to ask when you're writing these poems do you find yourself trying to like anticipate criticism in your work I feel like that's what we've been kind of talking about and I just would love to know what kind of questions you ask yourselves about representation and about how you want your poems to be perceived and this kind of reminds me of, um, I think it was you, Lisa, who brought the word prolepsis into my brain. Oh, I can't remember the definition, but I don't know. Maybe you could describe that for <laughs> everyone. 
Yeah, so I learned about prolepsis when I was taking a class with Rebecca Lindenberg a couple of years ago, and it's the act of anticipating critique in order to diffuse it. And I thought about this a lot in terms of how am I writing things in a way that white readers um, will kind of receive it in a way that's positive to me. Um, Stereotypes are something that I think about a lot in terms of my writing. Um, So definitely with Palinode, with anticipating how readers might see my mom. When your mother enters the poem, should she be a strict, sad, hardworking, or immigrant mother? Your mother reads the poem and tells you she isn't an immigrant. Student visa, she corrects your language. Another way to think about this question, like really simply is, what are the questions you ask yourself, you know, as an Asian American woman writing poems about that experience, right? In our past, present, and I feel like in both of your poems, you're projecting to the future. Hmm. I think recently I've been thinking even about like my wording in terms of like, how would I say this specific term or describe this situation to Asian friends? And how would I say it in you know, a room with white people? Are there ways that I can speak to multiple audiences mm. um, and kind of like lay those kind of like golden egg or tickets or whatever they're called? <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like I find some awkward moments in my poems while revising when I'm either trying to say things in a way that white audiences um, need just a little bit information more. Um, and I think this um, idea is something that a lot of poets are thinking about, but just um, writing in a way that your audience will have to do some of that work instead of you always having to labor for it yourselves. So thinking about that. I feel like this continues a conversation on feeling like who is in debt, right? And who puts in the work and this exchange, yeah, of capital and value. Yeah, mm-hmm, totally. And what about you, Marianne? Yeah, something um, I've been thinking about a lot is accessibility and also cliche in poems and the idea of being pigeonholed into being just a person who writes about race or writes about um, social justice issues. (laughs) And um, that's something that I, I worry about a lot. And I think that in my work, I want to do more than that. Like I want to bring more to it than that because I worry about that criticism. But then I'm also kind of resistant to that criticism because I feel like, why shouldn't I write about things that are meaningful to me or that matter to me or that I think are meaningful to the world? Why shouldn't I state those things explicitly? Why shouldn't I make it accessible to others? And so it's just a question that I've been thinking about lately in terms of my work is like, how avant-garde should it be? How inaccessible should it be? How much should I be playing with language versus how much should I be stating clearly what I mean? You know what I mean? So I think that that's something that has been coming up for me a lot, especially in terms of this project, which is really centered on race and racism and and feelings of racial alienation. Yeah, I love that you brought up accessibility, Marianne. And I often think about like how race is such like an opaque topic to begin with. People use coded language a lot. There are a lot of words that kind of mean other words um, when you're talking about race. So I really love the idea of using accessible language in order to kind of state it point blank, especially for white audiences, um, so that they you know, hear the word white a lot. And it's not just in situations where white people are describing themselves as you know, bad dancers or <laughs> things like that. So I love how accessible language can kind of counteract the just opaqueness of race itself. 
a lot of the poems that you're writing and and the ones in the in this issue you do the work of naming white and whiteness very well to the point where i feel like you're like breaking through that opaqueness or opacity i can never get that right um yeah i wasn't sure yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and another question i have for um, both of you is yeah what are some of the active naming and clarity like you try to push toward in your poems I think definitely what you just said, um, naming white a lot until um, up to the point where I feel like this is kind of repetitive. Um, and I love the way, Marianne, you use the word white in the My Therapist poem. You know, the whiteness is all around. And so it must be repeated uh, because it's, you know, that prevalent um, in a scenario. I think also about talking about um, racism in situations that happen today. Um, I know that <laughs> That probably doesn't sound that revolutionary. And I've written a lot of poems about racism that I've experienced in childhood. But I think, not that I think, I worry that sometimes if I only write about those poems and those experiences that happened in childhood, that white audiences might think that it was in the past and they don't feel implicated as much. Mm. So just thinking about situating and contextualizing racism in everyday situations that happen with, you know, even friends that I love. Um, my husband is white, so thinking about our relationship too. Yeah, and I think that um, one strategy that maybe both of us use, Lisa, I think that there's a talkiness in both of our aesthetics. And also, I try not to shy away from narrative. And I think that sometimes it's sort of taboo to have too much narrative in, in your poems. And um I really like narrative in poems, and I think that that can add to the emotional impact and the clarity of the poem. And so having a narrative arc to a poem, I think, can be helpful. Yeah, I, I want to make space for if you, Marianne or Lisa, had any more questions for each other. So Lisa, in your armpit poem, you mention the future daughter, who you hope will not think about white women or armpit hair as much as you, you're thinking about it. And so I'm wondering, how much are you thinking about parenthood as well? Yeah. In your poems or in general or in general. Yeah. Yeah. I think parenthood is such an interesting um, topic to like think about the future in terms of a way that is um, not just yourself, kind of like you were saying, Marianne, and I'm really excited to read your new work too, um, in which you're engaging with that. I don't know. I think parenthood is sometimes can be a shorthand, um, especially for somebody who doesn't have kids, can be a shorthand for um, thinking about and dreaming about what could be. I think Mary and I have similar wonderings that you have in your poem about your therapist, mm. being with a white person and thinking about parenting an interracial child, I think is something that um, I think that I'll have to kind of work through myself a lot. And yeah, we'll see. I'm not sure. My therapist asks if I grew up in Biddle City. There are lots of Biddle Cities everywhere, she tells me. I didn't know she knew about Biddle City. I thought it was a place I made up. I realized what was wrong all along. I say, I'm not an interracial person, but I'm afraid that I'm white. I'm afraid that I made myself white, that I'd chosen whiteness a long time ago. I see myself crying on a square on my computer screen. Like this, my face looks undeniably Asian. I try to relax so that it's no longer crumpled in this way, but it doesn't move. It's frozen like this in its rectangular box. 
I have more questions than answers, which I think is a good place to be after talking about poems and poetry. Yeah, thank you so much, Sue and Marianne. This was really fun to do this with you. Yeah, it was so great to do this with you too. And I loved listening to your answers, Lisa. And thanks for all the good questions, Sue. This was great. A big thank you to Marianne Chan and Lisa Lowe. Marianne Chan is the author of All Heathens, out from Sarah Band Books last year. Lisa Lowe's recent writing appears or is forthcoming in Copper Nickel, Crazy Horse, Ecotone, Gulf Coast, Poetry Northwest, and elsewhere. You can read even more poems than you heard today by Lowe and Chan in the September 2021 issue of Poetry in print and online. If you're not yet a subscriber to the magazine, there's a special rate for podcast listeners. For a limited time, you can get a full year of the magazine for $20. That's 11 book-length issues for just $20. Visit poetrymagazine.org slash podcast offer to subscribe. That's poetrymagazine.org slash podcast offer. This show is produced by Rachel James. The music in this episode came from Reservoir, Alabaster de Plume, John McCowan, Rob Mazurik, and Irreversible Entanglements. Until next time, be well, stay safe, and thanks for listening. <laughs>